this will be our Prophecy Focus Global Update time. Actually, well, we're going to call this a special edition based on what's taking place in Israel. Uh, good to see you folks. And uh, we'll be spending a great, probably the majority of time on that tonight, uh, going through a bunch of things that are taking place. Uh, I think unless you don't watch the local news or international news, uh, everyone should be aware by now that uh, Israel suffered a severe attack, attack on uh, last Saturday. And uh, we're going to go through some of those things. There's uh, another... I thought I turned that down. Sorry. Maybe that was for you guys. I don't know. Um, the bottom line is there's a lot of things that have come out from various prophecy teachers and so forth. And we want to get it right tonight the best we can as to what if any prophetic implications are involved with what just took place. Uh, but we'll get into that. But before we do, let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for what you mean to those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ as our personal Savior. And Lord, those of us that uh, certainly know at least a little bit from the scriptures know that uh, what's taking place in Israel right now is it's a tragedy. It's, it's a difficult time. And Lord, uh, we do pray for the peace of Israel, as you always asked us to do. Uh, Lord, pray that you'd protect the citizens, and uh, Lord, we just know it's such a dynamic situation right now, uh, but of course, it's in your hands. So Father, I pray that as we look at some of the events that have taken place in the past several days, and then as we look at uh, what is uh, the potential prophetic nexus here, I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding, and Lord, that uh, we would not allegorize or spiritualize what the scriptures tell us, uh, but take them for what indeed they do say. So Father, we ask that you teach us, give us wisdom, give us good uh, unity tonight. Pray for our young people, especially as they meet the teens and the young people. Uh, Lord, I pray that you bless the leadership, give them insight as to what the young people need tonight to help them in their spiritual walk. And then, Lord, if there's, as always, if anyone's in the building, no matter what their age, if they don't know Christ, might they, he be seen through the things that are said and done today in the gospel that will be shared. So, Father, we commit all this time to you. Pray and bless uh, our folks, Lord, Lord, right here at home. And, Lord, we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so once again, welcome to Union Grove Baptist Church. Uh, I think I know everybody in the building tonight. We've got one visitor. Good to have you. And uh, this is uh, what we do on Wednesday nights. Historically, we do what's called Prophecy Focus Global Update, which is what we're going to get into right now. And uh, then we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And uh, we'll see where we get on that tonight based on... Uh, some of the things we want to chat about with, again, what's just taken place in Israel. So uh, what I'm going to do, and some of you probably get some of these things that I'm going through, so it might be redundant, but uh, virtually every day I go, I have a bunch of different news feeds that come in, as well as uh, some things through Telegram and other uh, social media sources that I check. I know many of you check the same sources and see what's taking place. So we're going to try and walk through what took place on Saturday, what is, has, is, and probably will take place. 
And then we want to take a look at what's the biblical nexus, if any. So I want to start with this. I, I did it Sunday morning and Sunday night. I got um, late Saturday after the events took place, I got a call from another local pastor. And uh, he's like, Rich, do you think that this is the start of the Gog-Magog war in Ezekiel 38 and 39? And we'll actually go there in probably about 15, 20 minutes just to take a look at it. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, which most many of you are familiar with, it's the what's called the Gog-Magog war that is yet to take place. It's a prophetic war. And uh, basically that particular scenario is all the nations that surround Israel will be attacking her. And uh, there's a couple of things when we're looking at prophecy that it, it really, and here's where the confusing piece comes. The age that we currently live in, and you'll know the answer to this, we, what is the age in which we currently live? What do we call it? The church age or the age of grace, all right? The age of grace or the church age started after what event? What events, I guess you could say plural, but what major events took place before we get into the church age? Okay, Pentecost. Uh, Basically, when we look at it, we'll try and break it down into, into three major sections so we understand how God laid out his word. So if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you start in Genesis chapter 1 and go to Genesis chapter 11. And and for those of you that are familiar with this, we're reviewing basically God's prophetic timeline of three specific people groups. The first people that God created, were they Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. No Jewish people whatsoever. Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. Genesis 1 through Genesis 11 takes up the first 2,000 years of history. Now, let me set the calendar here. We're, we're only into about the year 6,000 now when we're looking at from creation until today. So the first 2,000 years or one-third of the history of the world literally takes place in Genesis 1 to 11. All right, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham comes on the scene, or Abram as he's called at that point. Abraham is one of the patriarchs of what group of people? The Jewish people. So in Genesis chapter 12, we have the patriarchs starting, kicking in. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and he has a son named Jacob, and his name is changed to Israel. So basically starting in Genesis chapter 12, until we get to the New Testament, until the time of Christ, we have another 2,000 years of history. So Genesis 1 to 11, 2,000 years of Gentiles only. Genesis 12 until we get to uh, uh, the Gospels, we have another 2,000 years of history, but who, what people groups now exist? Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so we have only Gentiles, Genesis 1 to 11, Jews and Gentiles, chapter 12 of Genesis all the way until we get into the gospel narratives. Then, after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, we have what's determined as a third people group, which is called who? It's the Christians, all right? So there were believers in God and so forth from a course of all the first 4,000 years, but we don't have the name Christians or the church age 
really until, uh, I forget who said it, until we get to, the, uh, Tony said it, until we get to the time of Pentecost after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So now we have Jews, Gentiles, and Christians. So what are Christians? You're like, well, how are they not Jews or Gentiles? Well, we have unsaved Jewish people, those that haven't placed their faith and trust in Christ. You have unsaved Gentiles, and then you have Christians, which are made up of Jews and Gentiles who have what? They place their faith and trust in Christ. All right, so that's the three main people groups that exist today. Now, why is that important? All right, let's go back to the Old Testament times before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When we're looking at Old Testament times, we are dealing specifically, again, Genesis 12 until you get through Malachi, what is the main people group being dealt with in the scripture? The Jewish people. God, and, and here's a strong statement, but um, I mean, it's, it's theologically true. God is dealing with the Jewish people, not the church age. So when we're looking at things in prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, we're dealing with the Jewish calendar, not the church age calendar. That's where you get into a whole lot of problems and, and confusion. So if we're looking at Ezekiel 38 and 39, and this is all coming around to this issue, if you're looking at Ezekiel 38 and 39, which deals with a Jewish prophetic calendar issue, the church age is not part of that. So under no circumstance can the Gog-Magog war take place until the rapture takes place because uh, we're in the church age calendar now, not the Jewish calendar. All right, and, or time period would be a better way to put it. Calendar could be confusing as well. So you're saying, well, when can the Gog-Magog war happen? Well, as I told the pastor, I'm like, listen, the next major event on God's prophetic calendar, and he agreed with me, he was a pre-trib guy, is the, the rapture, all right? So if the rapture, and I said, listen, if me and you meet in the air today, in other words, if the rapture takes place today, then yes, the Gog-Magog war could be in play the, day, the minute after we leave. So if you look, and we'll look at, and if, actually, I think I'm going to scoot ahead to that, seeing we've got started on it already. Excuse the, the slides here for a moment. All right, so when we're looking at, at the prophetic calendar, and the E dropped off a rapture there for some reason, but anyway, all right, so since the death, burial, and resurrection of, of, of the cross, which happened in the New or the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, right? Now, there's prophecy, of course, that talks about that. I mean, like Isaiah 53, other passages. But uh, uh, the church age or, uh, did not begin until after the cross. So the church age, basically, the things that are taking place now are not part of the Jewish prophetic scenario of the Old Testament. So you're like, okay, and, and we actually showed this uh, uh, Sunday, uh, confusion over what well, could Gog, Magog war in Ezekiel 37, 38 happen while the church is still here. My, my position is, and I believe theologically strong, is that nothing in Old Testament prophecy can take place during the church age. So the church has to be gone. That also makes it very clear why, you can read between the lines, why my pre-tribulation rapture and most of you pre-tribulation rapture 
Well, if you're not part of the Old Testament prophetic timeline of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, we can't be here. So when we're looking at, and I'm, I know we have some folks that, that are, are newer here, I'm trying not to be confusing, but the main key part of the prophetic calendar is found in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, the 70 week prophecy of Daniel. We're currently between, if you will, the 69th and 70th week. There's been a 2,000 year gap. Uh, we're, I, I, I hate to do this because many of you know this, but I, I see some new faces. Let's go to Daniel 9 real quick. I wasn't planning on doing this. But if I just make these statements without backing it up, it will be confusing. So let's go to Daniel chapter 9, and we'll start at verse 24 in a minute. So Daniel chapter 9, here's what's taking place. God had taken the Jewish people and taking them into captivity for a 70-year period. This was prophesied by Jeremiah. It was, uh, uh, and here's the reason why. The Jewish people failed to do the land Sabbath for 490 years, Second Chronicles 36. And because they failed to implement the land Sabbath, in other words, for 490 years, every seven years, according to Leviticus, they were to rest the land. Just like if you look at the Sabbath day, every seven days, the Jewish people were to rest, not to work. That was part of the law. Part of the law was you, you let the land rest every seven years. The Jewish people didn't do it. They broke the law. And God says, because you failed to follow the land Sabbath, I'm going to punish you. In, in uh, 586 B.C., I actually happen to have that slide here. In 586 B.C., the uh, uh, Judah, the southern tribes, were taken captive to Babylon for how long? For how long? 70 years. 70 years. All right? That's very, very important, okay? Because in Daniel 9.24, we're talking about the 70-week prophecy, and it all falls right back to uh, the Babylonian captivity of 586 B.C. Bottom line, the, the Jews are in captivity. In 586, they're taken to Babylon. They're un, uh, the, I mean, Jerusalem, the city, the Jews are basically all, except for the sick, lame, and injured, taken to Babylon. So that's where they're at. All right, so in Daniel 9, we get the, and, and again, sorry for those that are familiar with this, but I want to try and get everybody up to speed as quick as possible. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, Daniel's where? Where is he at right now? When he's writing this, he's in Babylon. He's in captivity. It's coming up. He's been there almost 70 years, so he knows, according to Jeremiah, that he should be out of there and going back to Israel soon. So Daniel falls on his face. Let's go back to verse 1, Daniel 9, 1. In the first year, Darius, the son of Ashuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. All right, so Daniel knows this. He knows, according to Jeremiah the prophet, 70 years after they're taken to Babylon, he should be able to be released with the other Jewish people and go back to where? Israel, the promised land, right? Jerusalem. Verse 3, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy 
with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. Right? Daniel knew they had messed up. They had not done what they were supposed to do. So he's basically doing the right thing. He's falling on the sword. Yes, we've messed up. We've sinned uh, and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Uh, Daniel 9, verse 6 is where we're at. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteous this belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them. All right, so he's just acknowledging. It's just going through the history. We messed up. We're in captivity, and now he's confessing the sin. All right, so let's go down to verse 16, because I, I don't have time to go through all of it. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Uh, there's multiple synonymous terms here, but we're talking about Jerusalem, also in Scripture. You'll often called, have it called the holy mountain. And uh, most of you will know the answer to this. What is the holy mountain on which Jerusalem sits? Mount what? Starts with an M. Mount Moriah, all right? Uh, the Dome of the Rock sits at the top of Mount Moriah, which, of course, was the second temple, first temple, when this was being written. Uh, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, he's talking about the people. Which people is he talking about? Who's The Jewish people, right? They messed up. They didn't follow the law. Verse 17, now therefore our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Well, in 586, what happened to the temple, which was the sanctuary? Who tore it down? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of what group? The Babylonians, where they're now at, at uh, under the nice auspices of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. Again, all about what group of people? It's Jewish. There's no Christians yet. And the Gentiles don't have a play here. Uh, your, in verse 18, your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Right, so, I mean, he's making an appeal to God. It's like everything's about you. We know it's about you. We know we've messed up. Verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, who? Israel. So, it's all about the Jewish people here. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain. Holy mountain is synonymous with what? Jerusalem. Remember, Holy Mountain always is referring to Jerusalem. Verse 21. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer. Oh, here we have a messenger. The man, specifically angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. 
Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. All right, so here we have Daniel. He knows he's, he's at the end of uh, what should be the 70 years. He's begging God. It's like, please, you know, uh, we know we've done wrong. I love you. I want to do right. And let's get back to Jerusalem. All right, now God says, all right, I hear your prayer. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to be taking place. So we go down to Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 24, and he's going to be talking about the prophecy that I believe is the most important, strongest prophecy in the entire Bible concerning uh, the prophetic timeline for the Jewish people. Poetic pause. For which people? Jewish people. All right? Now, you're going to find the church age in this prophecy, but it's not going to be spoken about. You say, what do you mean by that? Stay tuned. All right. Daniel's prophecy. Seventy weeks are determined for whose people? Who's Daniel's people? The Jewish people. And for your holy city. What's the holy city? So we have the holy city. We have the mountain of God. We have Jerusalem. All synonymous terms. Now, Poetic pause again, 70 weeks. And if you're new to this, some of you aren't, but some are. So for the scholars in the room, bear with me. 70 weeks in the Hebrew. Remember now, the Old Testament was written in mainly in Hebrew, and there's a few passages, actually happen to be in Daniel, that are written in what other language? Aramaic in the original. So we have Hebrew and Aramaic. In the Hebrew here, 70 weeks. The word weeks is not referring to literal 70 weeks because the word there is what? Heptad, H-E-P-T-A-D. A Hebrew heptad means seven of something. So every week has to equal seven of something. All right, so I'm going to tell you the punchline and then we'll prove it in just a minute. Every prophetic week, every prophetic heptad refers to seven years. So one week equals what? Seven years. All right? So 70 weeks, when you multiply that times seven, what do you get? What's the number? How many years did the Jewish people not follow the land Sabbath? 490. Do you see a correlation there? Hopefully you say yes. <laughs> 490 years, they failed to follow the land Sabbath. Now God is saying 490 years, or in the Hebrew idiom, 70 weeks are determined. Well, what does that mean? What are you going to do in those 70 weeks or 490 years? Well, all this is looking it's, uh, towards the millennium. He gives you several things, which we're not going to go through in detail because I want to get to the prophecy. So here's what's going to happen. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. All right, we're not going to go through all that. Verse 25, though, I want to make it specific as to when we're looking at what's happening in Israel, what, if anything, is the prophetic nexus? Verse 25. All right. We're looking at a period of how many years now? Just to, to review. How many total years are we involved in? 490 years. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build what? 
Jerusalem until what? Messiah the Prince, the only place in the Bible where the word Messiah is used. To restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. All right, so what is this prophecy? So it's being given somewhere in the mid-500 B.C. range. What he's telling us here is there's going to be a decree. It hasn't been given yet. Now, Cyrus, by the way, will give a decree to go back and basically build, start building the temple. That's not the right decree here. The decree he's talking about here is very specific. It's not about rebuilding the, the sanctuary. It's to restore, verse 25, and build Jerusalem. Who gave that decree? Now, there's a few of you here that might know the name of the king that gave that particular decree. Arda, Artaxerxes. In what year did King Artaxerxes give that particular decree? 445 B.C. In 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave this very specific decree. Now, according to if the Bible is true, which of course I believe it is, and it's going to prove itself very specifically here, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, wait a minute, you're telling me. What is, I mean, this is the most outstanding prophecy in the Bible, and unfortunately most people, and I even got to say, most pastors, if they don't pay attention and they, they fell asleep in their Daniel classes or their prophecy classes, this tells you unequivocally the day when Jesus Christ is going to come into Jerusalem to be what? Crucified. And it's right there. You say, wait a second. From, the, from the, when, the day that this command is given, you count forward 69 and 7. Well, 69 and 7 is, or 62 and 7 is how many weeks? 69. Now, that's 69 weeks, but we're talking heptads. So, whenever that decree is given, we have 69 times what number? 7, because every week is 7 years. You multiply 7 times the 69, and what do you come up with? 483 years. What God is telling Daniel right here, he's like, if you pay attention, when the king, when the king gives this decree, go forward 483 years or 173,880 days, you say, well, what basket did you just pull that number out of? Every prophetic year is 360 days. Their calendar is not like our 365. So if you go 360 times 69, or uh, 480, I'm sorry. If you go 69 times what? I get my math messed up now. 483 literally times 7 will give you 173,880 days. Sorry, I got confused for a moment. That happens a lot. Anyway, and you're saying, well, wait a minute. You're saying the decree that was given in 445 B.C., if you counted forward that exact number, that you would come to the day that Christ would have come to be crucified. It's exactly what I'm saying. And it's exactly what the Bible says. It's unequivocal. And you say, well, wait a minute. How can you prove that? Because historically it happened. And there's no doubt about it. It, it happened. 
So we know the exact date in 445 B.C. when King Artaxerxes made that claim. And guess what? You would not be here tonight if you didn't believe that in that cross standing behind me. Did Jesus Christ come? Did the Messiah come? Was he crucified? Did it happen 483 years or 173,880 days after that decree was given? It absolutely did. It's a historical fact. Folks, do you know any other book in the world that has that kind of accuracy? I mean, it's amazing. Now, the thing that I'm getting to, and we're going back to Israel, long way to go back to Israel here, and we're going to go, well, I'm going to finish this little passage out in just a moment. What is this telling us? It's telling us that, okay, we know when the Messiah was going to come. All right, keep, let's look at verse 25 again. So what's going to happen after that 69 weeks or 483 years? The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. All right, so did that take place? And the answer is, yeah. And after the 62 weeks, what happens? Messiah shall be cut off. We know that took place. One more prophecy is given in verse 26. Uh, Messiah shall not be cut off, but not for himself. Did Jesus die for himself? He died for whom? He died for all people. All right? And the people, here's a, here's a good one now. And the people of the prince, notice it's a small p. We're not talking about the Messiah here. We're talking about another person. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Whoa, wait a minute. The second temple, which is what the Jewish people went back to build, isn't even <laughs> built yet. Daniel is prophesied. The first temple was destroyed when, when the, when the um, Babylonians came in. That's why they're in, in Babylon at this point when Daniel's writing this. The first temple was destroyed. He's talking prophetically now about the second temple that's also going to be destroyed. Well, wait a minute. Okay, 69 weeks have taken place. Messiah was crucified. Was the second temple, which was completed in 515 B.C., the second temple was completed, was the second temple torn down? In what year did that happen? In A.D. 70. And what people group came in to do that? Oh, General Titus, under his dad Vespasian, comes in and destroys the second temple, scatters the Jewish people in A.D. 70 Jewish people scattered around the world, basically leaving Jerusalem with a handful of Jewish people. Well, let's see. Is, uh, verse 26, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, this was written back in, in mid-500 B.C. Christ was crucified. The second temple was destroyed over 500 years before these, or, yeah, well over 500 years before these two events took place. The prophecy was given to Daniel's people who are what ethnicity? Jewish. You're like, okay, so where does the church come in? All right, so we start about the, uh, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Okay, apocalyptic concept. It didn't get destroyed by, by a big water flood. It was destroyed by the flood and power of the Roman army when it came in and destroyed the city and uh, uh, scattered the Jewish people. Until the end of the war, des desolations are determined. All right, now 
here's the key to the prophetic calendar in between, between, <laughs> that's what makes it rough, between verse 26 and verse 27. Here's where the church ages, between verse 26 and verse 27. Does it say after verse 26, then Jesus will come and the church age will begin? You find that there. It's not there. What does he say? Verse 27, the first word is what? Then. So we have two major events that had to take place prophetically to the Jewish people. The Messiah to be cut off. The Jewish temple had to be destroyed. The second temple, that is, which was in AD 70. Then, who's he? He shall confirm a covenant, basically a peace treaty with many, for one week. How long is one week? Seven years. But in the middle of the week, or in the middle of the seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. The word he there is, should not be capitalized. That's a, by the way, in uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, they did not use capital letters in the original manuscripts. If you see capital letters, who put them there? The translators. All right, let's go back to verse 26. Who is the prince that's going to come? Because whoever that person is, he's going to come from the group that destroys the second temple. You already told me what people group destroyed the second temple. The Romans. Who is this prince that's to come and is going to confirm a peace treaty with the Jewish people for one week, and then in the middle of the week he's going to bring an abomination or he's going to bring an end to the sacrifice and offering or the abomination of desolation found in Matthew 24, uh, 14, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and other places. You've all heard of the abomination of desolation, right? Who's going to be the guy that's going to do that? The Antichrist, of course. So, in verse between verse 26 and verse 27, we go from the destruction of the second temple to what? the individual that's going to come and confirm a peace treaty or covenant with the Jewish people for the seven-year period, better known as the seven-year what? Bam. What has to happen before that happens? Well, between verse 26 and verse 27, we have what's known as, and you all described it as we started, the church age or the age of grace. It was inserted into God's prophetic calendar. Now you say, well, why is that important? Because when prophecy teachers and others are saying, well, the Gog Magog war just started. Uh-uh. No, sir. No, ma'am. No can do because it is part of the Jewish calendar or the Jewish prophetic calendar, not the Christian calendar, if you will, or the church age calendar. Um, I'm going to go to one more passage. Go to Colossians. I'm going to show, there's three passages that actually say pretty much the same thing. I'm just going to go to one. Oops, I guess i got to go to the right book. All right, go to the New Testament into Colossians. It's also in Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to 7, says pretty much X. Actually, let's go to Ephesians 3, one book earlier. Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll go to verse 
verse 1. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation. Another poetic pause. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you who? Gentiles. Was Paul the one given the specific ministry to go reach the Gentiles for Christ? The answer is yes. Not to the exclusion of the Jews, but God specifically had called him to preach to the Gentile people. Verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. What's the word dispensation? The actual word in the Greek is talking about economia or economy. What does that mean? We're not talking about financial things. We're talking about a dispensation or an economy or a period of time. What does that mean? What it means is in the most simplistic form, a dispensation is God working with a specific people at a specific time with a specific purpose. All right? The Old Testament was under law or grace? Under law. We get into the New Testament, we're under what? Grace. That's the simplistic piece of just looking how God dealt in the Old Testament before Christ came. It was a dispensation of law. We're now, if you will, in the dispensation of grace or the church age. Now, let's see how he expands on that. Verse 3. How that by revelation, here God made known to me the mystery. Greek word mysterion. A literal mystery. Something that was not disclosed, not revealed, not uncovered until he tells it to Paul. As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the what? Mystery of Christ. What was not made known in the past? What was kept a secret, if you will? Verse 5, and here he, he accentuates it. Which in other ages or periods of time was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Well, tell us, Paul, what's, what's the mystery? What has God been keeping a secret? Well, he tells us, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the what? The grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Was not made known in ages past. Everything was revolving around the Jewish people. If you, as a Gentile, wanted to follow God in the Old Testament, you became a what? Starts with a P. A proselyte. You would proselytize to Judaism. So Gentile people could certainly, if you will, follow God. They could be believers in God. But it wasn't becoming a Christian. You proselytized to Judaism. In other words, everything was under the Jewish program. Now Paul says, time out, folks. Something has changed. Since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the law has been abolished. Christ fulfilled the law. We now live under grace, i.e. the age of grace. And Daniel 9, verse 26, goes through two things. The, the cutoff of Christ when he's crucified, the destruction of the second temple. Then the next thing we find in the Jewish prophetic calendar 
is the start of the tribulation. From the cross to the tribulation does not exist in Old Testament prophecy anywhere. doesn't exist. And you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, read the Old Testament. If you can find the church between Genesis and Malachi, let me know. I, I, in the past, I've made this statement. I'm, I, you know, it's a stupid statement, but I'm like, if you can find the church age literally spoken about, not figuratively or suggested, I'll give you $10 million. Well, I haven't got $10 million to give anybody, so it's kind of a silly thing to say. But it, it's not there. It just isn't. Um, so, getting back now, that was 40 minutes to get to this point. One little teeny point. What is happening in Israel today is not N-O-T, capital N, capital O, capital T, not part of the prophetic calendar. This happens to be an issue whereby Israel, which has had multiple different incursions and wars, which we're going to go through in the next probably 15 minutes or so. All right, I'm going to go back to the beginning, so close your eyes so you don't have a go into a seizure here. All right, so let's start. Here's the update as of this morning. Heavy barrages of rock rockets were fired at Ashkelon, Ashdod, and other towns and community near the Gaza border. All right, so they were basically talking along the Mediterranean coast, coast these cities exist. So Gaza, and we'll show you a map in a little bit, are firing rockets, of course, into these areas. The Air Force has so struck over 2,500 targets in Gaza, and strikes continue at this time. All right, so Saturday morning we have the incursion, uh, horrible, catastrophic failure by Israeli security. They are pulling uh, their hair out right now trying to determine how Israel, which is one of the, <laughs> there's allegedly one of the top security countries in the world, how do you have a catastrophic failure where your border is literally, just, I mean, it, they walk through like they own the place. So here's the issue. And, and if again, I don't know who's watched what or what you're up to date on, so if I'm giving you stuff you know, again, my apology. So here's what takes place. Down on the Gaza border, um, the security system that was set up there is basically electronic instead of man-made, or man-people standing there watching. Now, there are some outposts or uh, um, guard posts that were down there. This thing, according to individuals that were captured by the IDF, Israel Defense Force, Hamas soldiers or uh, terrorists, or not soldiers or terrorists, were pulled in question. And the one guy says, man, you know, I'm, uh, we were shocked to death. We, we showed up at, we expected there to be people lined up ready to kill us trying to get through that fence. We've been planning this since August. I mean, it, it actually, others have said they've been planning this incursion for a year. How in the world did not the Israel intelligence pick up on it? Well, of course, that immediately, and you probably have heard these things if you're paying attention to the news, it's like this is a catastrophic failure to the point of uh, conspiracy theories being thrown out there that someone within the Israeli uh, security force had to be corrupt in order for this thing to take place. Well, that's a theory. There's no proven fact about that at this point. So what you're going to see, you're going to hear a ton of different explanations, a ton of different theories about, well, this went wrong, that went wrong, this person messed up, that person messed up. It was a huge catastrophic failure. That we know for sure. 
Now, having been in the sheriff's office and having been sheriff for several years, here's how you do things if you do them properly in the media. When a catastrophic event takes place, number one, you get your face on the media immediately and get in front of the issue, which is Netanyahu did do that. You get in front of the, of the camera, and here's what you should say if you're thinking. Yes, we had a catastrophic failure. We are investigating it. You don't come out with, well, maybe this happened. Maybe You don't know what happened yet. They don't know what happened yet. So all the things that you hear coming out in the media, you have no knowledge of what is true and what isn't. So it's speculation. Just like I'll throw, I, I threw out the one thing. Uh, uh, was there a conspiracy involved? Well, that, I mean, just saying that, people are like, oh, maybe it's a con We don't know that. And so, as a judge would say, strike that from the record. We don't know that that took place. What we do know for certain is there were cameras on the border. Somehow they got the electronics torn down. Somehow the people that are sitting in the command post didn't get notified properly. Somehow the, the, the guard post got taken out. And bam, they had a ton of time to break down the fences. Some of you probably have seen the pictures. They bulldozed some of the fences down. In come hundreds of uh, guys on motorcycles, walking in other vehicles. And man, they come in and just start shooting away at uh, civilians and so forth uh, to the tune of it. It started, I believe, around 6 p.m. And they just came in and started shooting up everybody they could possibly get to. Uh, if you heard about the music festival, 250 people were at the a music festival, which is close to the uh, Israeli border or of Gaza. They went in there, killed every single person they could. A couple of people, as of today, I found out escaped. I uh, saw their pictures, and uh, a couple of kids uh, escaped. They escaped, went, went right to IDF headquarters, signed up, and are out fighting now. You know, they, they don't they don't mess around there. Uh, it was. Uh, a female and a male, uh, both young, and they're like, sign me up, and then they go, start fighting. But uh, uh, as of right now, according to the, the count, there's over 1,200 Israelis that were killed. Again, Gaza, if you watch the news, is getting the absolute fire blown up out of them. And you're like, okay, what's right and what's wrong? That's another issue. What's the ethical, moral, whatever issue here? So here's what you have to take into account, and I'm... I'm not making a statement. I'm simply saying here's what's taken place. Hamas, which is, of course, a Islamic terrorist group. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's a, that's a fact. Hamas is the group coming out of Gaza, which is in southern Israel, land, by the way, that Israel gave up years ago, which was one of the dumbest things I believe they ever did, which allowed now 2.2 million Palestinians to control that property, and they've been lobbing rockets in ever since. They got that property. So now uh, the president or uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, as well as the, the government that's in place, said Hamas is going bye-bye. They're not going to exist. So what you're seeing in all the bombing and the things that are taking place is literally Hamas getting blown up. But wait a minute, there's 2.2 million people there. How many of them are actually part of Hamas? Well, they're not all part of Hamas. The unfortunate thing in war, and, and this is a war, it's not, in, it's not I don't like you, so we're going to fight and I'm going to kill a few of your people. We're in war. 
or we're not, but they're in war. By the way, uh, if you've been watching what uh, President Biden has done, I guess I have to applaud him for this. Uh, two aircraft carriers have been sent into the Mediterranean area uh, with a lot of our supplies, ammunition and guns and stuff have been sent to Israel to help them. So I do applaud that, uh, at least on a, on a Israeli humanitarian level. Here's what you have to take into account, and you make up your own mind on how you want to deal with it. When Hamas came in and began to shoot men, women, and children, civilians, and behead babies to the tune of dozens of babies that were beheaded, dozens of children that were killed, folks, that's, that's an atrocity. So uh, basically, the statement was made that uh, if Hamas did this, they've got to pay a significant price for it. The unfortunate thing is our Islamic people who are not part of is Islam or not part of um, Hamas and not out there fighting actively, are there men, women, and children who are basically just living in, if you will, Gaza, who had nothing to do with what's taking place? The answer is yes, of course. They, um, the prime minister basically said, if you don't want to get killed, you better find cover, you better get out of the area, and of course he, uh, um, he encouraged people to go down south into Egypt to get away from it because we're going to blow this place to pieces. So are men, women, babies, children going to be killed? Are some of the hostages from Israel and potentially some American hostages, are they potentially going to die in what's taking place right now? The answer is yes. So I, I know there's differing opinions as to whether that's good, bad, or ugly. Of course, it's horrible. Nobody wants to see it happen. But when you come in and butcher and slaughter men, women, and children that are not in military, that's kind of like the unforgivable sin for a country, and they are taking action. Again, if you find it morally offensive, um, so be it. The official Israeli death count is now over 1,200, including 169 soldiers. There are 483 soldiers, we're talking about Israel now, injured in various conditions. Over 35 special units are operating in southern Israel to clear the, air of terrorists, the area of terrorists. In the past day, 18 terrorists have been killed in Israel. In other words, they got in there when the, the fighting began. Of course, many, many of them were also killed that invaded. Many of them escaped. And you can bet your little bottom dollar that there's still a ton of terrorists where? In Israel. Now, if I had more time, we'd talk about what's in the United States of America right now because our borders have been open for a significant period of time. If you watch the protests that are taking place around the country and the green flags that are waving in major urban areas in America, where do you think some of that came from? Israel found out when you don't pay attention and you don't guard your border, this is what happened. A catastrophic failure, massive loss of life. Yesterday or Tuesday, and this is today's article, 14 rockets were fired into Israel from southern Lebanon. 
Now, is Lebanon, don't get confused by the direction here. Here's Israel. This is south, this is north. Lebanon sits right up here. The Gaza Strip sits right here, and we'll show you a map. So what they're saying now is Hamas, which lives down in Gaza, has been firing into Israel. Lebanon and Syria, there's another terrorist group up there, also starts with an H, and the name is Hezbollah. So you have Hezbollah in the north, you have Hamas in the south, and uh, now it's... Uh, uh, Hezbollah is not, they're being very, very cautious right now because if they're watching what's taking place in the south, they understand if they bomb and actually are successful in bombing Israel, what's going to happen to Lebanon? It's going to look like Gaza, which is almost flattened out already. And they don't want that. So they're, they fired a few in just to kind of, well, we're kind of supporting, but it's been very minimal. Four rockets were intercepted, in other words, by the Iron Dome. Ten fell into open areas. So there was no damage, so kind of like, well, no harm, no foul, but I will guarantee you there will be repercussions from the Israel Defense Force. The IDF responded with artillery, oh, there we are, responded with artillery fire hitting two Hezbollah. Where's Hezbollah, north or south? North. North. Observation post. An anti-tank missile was then fired from Lebanese territory toward an Israeli armored, uh, armored army vehicle near the Avim military base. An Israeli attack helicopter struck another Hezbollah post in retaliation. In other words, this isn't like, well, yeah, they did it, but it, it's not like when they blew our, uh, or when uh, uh, the Russian balloon was flying over our, our territory for a good length of period of time before we finally decided to shoot the silly unmanned balloon down. It's serious stuff. You shoot at Israel, you're going to get shot back at. Why did I have to say that? I don't know. Hezbollah post retaliation. This came after three terrorists infiltrated the northern border. IDF, again, Israel Defense Force Brigade. Uh, a brigade deputy commander, Lieutenant Colonel Alim Abdullah, and two other soldiers were killed in a gun battle with the terrorists who were also killed. Several mortar shells were fired into uh, Israel from Syria. The IDF responded with artillery and mortar fire towards the source of the attack. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the shelling was carried out by Palestinian groups affiliated with Hezbollah. By the way, Lebanon sits here, Syria sits right next door. So Lebanon and Syria are right on the border of Israel. There were several incidents in the West Bank. Where's the West Bank at? All right, here's Israel. The West Bank is territory, and we'll show you the map in a minute, is the territory that uh, is also known as Judean Samaria, the West Bank. It's actually the East Bank of the Muslim territory it is, uh, or I'm sorry, it's the West Bank of the Palestinian land, and it's the East Bank of Israel. So we'll show you that. In a passionate, emotional speech yesterday, United States President Biden pledged America's unequivocal support for Israel. Well, thank goodness. Amen. Why? Because Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 1 through 3 says what? I will bless those who bless Israel, and I will curse those who Thank you, President Biden. That's a good decision. 
uh, if you love the Bible, uh, you ought to love the Jewish people, and President Biden made a good move here. U.S. President Biden pledged America's unequivocal support for Israel and condemned the savage and inhumane atrocities of Hamas. Thank you again. He also confirmed that at least 14 U.S. citizens were killed in the Hamas massacre. Not good. As Prime Minister Netanyahu told President Biden, the atrocities perpetrated by Hamas have not been seen since the Holocaust. Six million Jewish people killed back then, but, uh, uh, I mean, when, what, just the barbaric, horrible, inhumane actions that were taking place with civilians, it's, it's just, it, it's unimaginable. I, I mean, it just, I, I can't imagine it. As the stories of the frightful attack continue to emerge, the picture becomes more gruesome and unfathomable. The state of Israel was built on the pledge of never again. And here's what that, what, uh, uh, when they formed the Jewish state back in 1948, here were the statements. Never again would Jewish children be slaughtered along with their mothers. Just happened. Never again would Jewish grandmothers be tied up in murder. Just happened. Never again would entire Jewish families be executed in their homes. Just happened. Never again would Jewish women, children, and grandmothers in wheelchairs be bound and led away to be tortured and executed. Just happened. Never again would Jewish babies be thrown into fires and beheaded. Just happened. Folks, and of course, I don't recommend it. I don't look for the, the pictures, but I mean, they're everywhere. The, the, I mean, it's, it's just horrific what's taking place. But all these horrors and more than we ever can imagine at this time were perpetrated this weekend by men who equaled the Nazi SS in their methods. The planners and perpetrators, Hamas and Iran, Iran being named here, are pure evil and must be destroyed just like the Nazis. And the difference between now and the dark days of the Holocaust is that the Jewish people now should be, have the power to destroy those that rise up against us. Obviously, this is not written from a Christian perspective. This is written by Israel AM, written by Jewish folks, uh, and that is their strong perspective, and uh, you can choose to agree or disagree with it, but uh, I think their statements are pretty plain and pretty clear. All right, so we'll take a look at a map here. Uh, trying to get all Israel in a in a map is impossible, so it gets shrunk down considerably. I've made the biggest pieces so you can see them. So uh, on this particular map, and I think you can read the, the coding up there, the Jewish state specific, and again, state and country are synonymous here. So if you're talking about the Jewish state, you're talking about the Jewish country or Israel is in the green. The brown are the Arab property, if you will, and uh, Jerusalem itself, which you really can't see because it's so tiny, it's right in the middle on the right, above Gaza to the right, is where Jerusalem is, which of course is the smallest part of Israel. All right, so what are we looking at? Where you see the word Gaza on the map, and you can see the brown that's kind of around it, that is the Gaza Strip. That is where the 2.2 million Palestinians live. That's where Hamas is located. Now, here's the, here's the biggest issue. Hamas fights very dirty, as do many terrorist groups. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Where do they hide? In hospitals, in schools, in public areas. 
what does the military think about shooting up hospitals and schools and places where men, women, and children that are civilians are? You don't hit those kind of targets until you hit their targets. Israel said, you came in, you butchered our men, women, and children, and the women and children, of course, are the ones that come to the forefront. You committed atrocities with our civilian mothers, with our civilian children, and now, if you don't evacuate, you will die the same way. Again, war. When Jesus came, he said, a new commandment I give you that you should that you should love one another. When you look at the world situation, how much of the world embraces the philosophy of Christ? It's very small. It's horrifically small. And because of man's corrupt, sinful, wicked, rotten heart, that's why we're in this situation today. Because man is corrupt, and man is sinful, and man does need Jesus. And it's like we can immediately, and here's, here's the hard part. As Christians, what group of people did Christ say he wouldn't die for? Can you name me one? Did Jesus ever say, I will not die for German people, uh, Chinese people? Did he say, I won't die for Seventh-day Adventists or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Jewish people or Islamic people? Did Christ die for the Islamic people? Did he give his life to pay for their sins if they would accept him? And that's where it gets tough. Because in our minds right now, it's like, and especially in a Christian venue, we love the Jewish people. We just do. Because we believe the Old Testament, we believe the New Testament. God's got a plan for the Jewish people, and we love them. And when you, you look at this, and you look at Hamas, and you look at the jihadists, and you look at Islam, it is very, very easy to get a very harsh, cynical attitude towards the people as a whole. Um, I always mess his name up. He's a famous writer, Rosenthal. He's a Jew. I'm sorry? Um, I'm not. No, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, there we go. And uh, he went to Israel with his kids. And he's, he's a believer. His kids, they moved in from the States, knowing that his girls would have to join the IDF. This happened several years ago. And he is talking about his love for the Muslim people, and he's been going and evangelizing the Muslim people. I was at a conference, it was at a um, pre-trib research society meeting in Dallas, Texas, when I heard him speak. I'll be straightforward. I had a bad attitude towards all Muslim people until I heard him speak. And he's starting to talk about that God is saving a lot of Muslim people, and they're listening to the gospel, and they're coming to Christ. We have a missionary that we support, and I'm not going to give his name because we're on the air right now. 
We have a missionary that we support who's every, I mean, he's constantly going into these Muslim areas, and I get reports from him. He sends emails and things about folks that are coming to Christ. And I'm like, shame on me. And it really was. It was a very convicting moment several years ago, and it's like, wow, God can save Muslim people. Does God love Muslim people? Does God love the atrocities they commit? Of course not. But God, I mean, uh, uh, he loves me. I'm a sinner. He loves them. They're sinners. So the, the point is this. No, I absolutely do not condone the atrocities and the horrible uh, uh, things that the terrorists do. But I do condone giving folks the gospel when the, when the opportunity permits itself to love these dear people uh, uh, despite their horrible outcomes, if you will, at times. All right, so if we look on the map, you see Lebanon and Syria. That is, again, where Hezbollah is outfitted. Down in Gaza, again, Hamas has lobbed in thousands and thousands of, of rockets, and it has been a constant issue down there. That's been ongoing forever since they've gotten that property. But now Gaza, uh, based on their uh, horrific acts, is now being taken out. Now, you see that brown section in the middle? which you can, I don't, you probably can't see it. I'm going to point it, ugh, my legs work. All right, so this is, this is Samaria. Jerusalem is right here on the map. All of this area, who technically owns that according to Scripture? The Jewish people. All of this land, all of this land, all of that land was given up by the Jewish people in different treaties. So the West Bank is indeed that middle section. So that's what's known as the West Bank. And you'll, I mean, it's constantly in the news. The West Bank is filled with terrorists. It's filled with people that hate the Jewish people. And a big rub, and this is kind of off track right now, but a big, big rub between the Palestinians and the Jews are what you'll hear are settlements. In other words, Jewish settlements that have moved into these areas, and it just causes havoc uh, uh, with those groups. And they, I mean, they're constantly fighting. It's constantly a mess. All right, but right now, Gaza Strip, which, again, 2.2 million people is being blown to smithereens as we speak. All right, we kind of went through that. Now, here's, I'm putting this up here on purpose. All right, going back here, 722 B.C., the Assyrian deportation of the ten northern tribes to Assyria. Then we go into the other prophesied piece of the Babylonian deportation, which happened in 586, and then we spent time in Daniel 9 uh, talking about the dispersion of the Jewish people in A.D. 70. All right. From A.D. 70 until 1948 A.D., did the Jewish people have any property in Israel? No. 1948 is when the Jewish people, after almost 2,000 years, finally get a land piece back. Since 1948, these are some of the major incursions that have taken place or major wars. So in 1948 to 1949, which was Israel's War of Independence and the Palestinian Nakba, which they call it. Was that part of prophecy? Well, the, the gathering of the Jewish people back to their land, God promised that that would take place in Ezekiel 37. So there is a prophetic nexus there. Have the entire Jewish people 
Have they all returned to Israel yet? The answer is no. 50% of the Jewish people, or 7.5 million Jews, have returned to Israel. 50% are still scattered around the world. Will Ezekiel 37 be fulfilled when all the Jewish people return to Israel? The answer is yes. So if you will, the best stretch I can give for the prophetic scenario is we're seeing the beginning stages of God bringing the Jewish people back so that Ezekiel 37, when he has literally the Jewish people back in the land, will become fulfilled. So we're seeing those beginning stages even as we speak. All right, what else has happened that did not amount to Gog, Magog, or any other anything else in Scripture? The Six-Day War, huge in, uh, uh, invasion in 1967. The Yom Kippur War. What year did that happen? 1973. How long ago was that? 50-year anniversary. Guess when it happened? Uh-huh. In, in, in October, right? Uh, Yom Kippur War. Well, let me see. When did the 2023 invasion take place? It was all planned. It's all, all part of the plan. 50 years later. Uh, Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur being the most holiest day of the year. It's the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people. They're all in their mourning. They're all uh, trying to be, uh, uh, I mean, Orthodox and even the uh, the people we'll call not Orthodox are very loosey-goosey, if you will, with their Judaism. Yom Kippur, most people, it's like Christmas and Easter with Christians. It's a big holiday. Uh, one of mourning and getting right with God. So all the Jewish people are at rest. In 19, If you go to Israel today, first time I went to Israel, I go into, I'm at the Sea of Galilee. We're in a big open area uh, where they call the Jesus Boat. It's a museum. All of a sudden, I start to see all these green uniforms starting to walk into the building I'm in. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? I mean, dozens and dozens of people, uh, uh, young people with uh, Kalashnikov rifles in uh, full military suits are walking in, and I'm like, I'm getting a little nervous. Like, what in the world's going on? Well, I did not know, but since 1973, because Israel got caught the same way they just got caught this week, they got invaded, and they got invaded bad, and they got... They, they got a big spanking from those that came in. So they, they made it a law that all the young people that are part of the IDF, they have to wear their uniforms and carry their guns 24-7. So they were simply walking in. That's, I mean, you walk all over, you go through Israel, they're everywhere because it's part of the law. Well, guess what? 2023, 50 years later, Familiarity breeds contempt and complacency, and guess what happened? That's unfortunate. 1982, Lebanon War, 2006, Second Lebanon War, 2023, Israel-Hamas-Gaza War. So uh, uh, the reason I put that up there, these are major wars that have taken place with Israel. Were they prophetic pieces of the puzzle? The answer is no. It's just unfortunate that Israel is constantly being invaded. All right, uh, will there be a Gog-Magog war? Absolutely, rapture will take place sometime. Uh, I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 will take place right at the beginning of the tribulation period. You say, well, why do you believe that? 
All right, so here's what's going to take place. And, of course, many of these are players uh, right now. Uh, by the way, I believe Iran and, and potentially Russia probably had some type of involvement with, with what just took place, at least in the planning phases. But uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, again, if you read it, which we're not going to go through, we only got about five minutes left. But uh, just to give you the concept here, uh, you're looking at the Gog as the leader, uh, Magog, uh, and, and you've got to go back to the uh, old maps, if you will, Magog representing the Russian area, uh, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma, all talked about in Ezekiel 38, that's all modern-day Turkey, Libya is still Libya. Uh, when Ezekiel 38 talks about Persia, that now is the land of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. Is Iran a major player on uh, the current scene? Oh, yeah, huge player. Ayatollah uh, uh, Khomeini is still, I mean, good night. He's like the, he's the head of the entire Islamic world, if you will, and they look to him for leadership. Uh, I forget the name of the place they were at, but uh, the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah were uh, meeting with him not that long ago. Shocking that this just took place. All right, when you look at uh, Ethiopia and Ezekiel 38, it includes the land of modern-day Somalia, Sudan, and uh, current Ethiopia. All right, so all those, when, if, you, if all those nations come out against Israel, they would have a huge problem. Very interesting. Are all of them attacking Israel as we speak? The answer is no. No. You say, well, why not? Well, it can't happen yet because I'm here, because you're here. Can't happen. Won't happen. Because in Ezekiel chapter 38 at the end and in Ezekiel 39, what happens to all those nations when they attack Israel? He wipes them out. He burns them with fire and brimstone. That's chapter 39. Will it happen? Oh, absolutely it's going to happen. Here's, this is so difficult for us to understand. You and I, as Christians, we want to bless Israel. Yes? We want to bless the Jewish people. Here's the tough part of prophecy. God is going to pull all the Jewish people back to the land at the beginning of the tribulation period. Are they going there as believers in Christ, or are they going there as Jewish people that, quite frankly, have no interest in the Messiah? They're going there back, according to Ezekiel 37, in unbelief. They're without, he, he basically states, remember the dry bones scenario? All the bones start to come together, but they had no what in them? No breath, no life. That's God regathering the Jewish people without spiritual life, and that's what he's doing. The unfortunate thing, which is really difficult for me and you to grasp, there's going to be the worst, and and You've heard me say this, those of you that are, have been here for years. The worst Holocaust of all time is yet to come. The 15 million Jews, if the numbers stay the same, God makes it clear, and you know this because I've gone here many times, for the last thing, because we're going to run out of time. Go, go, if you're in Daniel, go ahead to Zechariah, book before the Matthew or uh, two books before Matthew, so Zechariah, Malachi. Go to Zechariah chapter 10. I'm sorry. Uh, 
sorry, 13. Yeah, 13. Go to Zechariah 13, or go to verse 8. I just made a strong statement. The worst Holocaust of all time is yet to come. Prophetically speaking, Zechariah 13, God is going to have all of the Jewish people back in the land. According to Daniel chapter 9, when we read the first part of that seven-year time, how is the Antichrist going to treat the Jewish people, good or bad? Very good. He's going to allow them to build what? The next temple, the third temple. So everything is going to be great for the Jewish people for the first three and a half years, the first 42 months, the first 1260 days of the tribulation period. Then, according to Revelation chapter 12, somebody's going to get tossed out of ever having access to God again, along with all of his angels, and they are going to be furious. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, talks about Satan having a war with Michael the archangel. They are cast out of, and there's, of course, the first, second, and third heavens. They are cast out down to this earth, never allowed to go up again. The Bible tells us, Revelation chapter 12, that Satan is furious because his time is short. 42 months left. This happens at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Satan comes down. He gets the Antichrist and the false prophet totally controlled, totally infiltrated, or totally um, possessed, if you will, by Satan. And the worst Holocaust of all time is going to take place. The abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 14. Who's going to go into the temple and defile it? Well, the false prophet and the Antichrist, they're going to make an image to the beast or the Antichrist, Revelation 13. They put the uh, uh, abomination of desolation takes place. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells the Jewish people to what? Flee, get out of town, run as fast as you can. Don't get your baby buggy. Don't go up on the roof. Don't get your stuff out of your house. He tells them, Matthew 24, run as fast as you can. They're going to start escaping because it's certain death for all Jewish people that don't escape. You see, what's happening in Israel today is horrible. What's going to happen is going to be 10,000 times worse than what just happened on Saturday. Zechariah 13, verse 8. And it shall come to pass in all the land. What is the land always referred to? Israel, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die but one third shall be left in it I will bring the one through third through the fire will refine them as silver is refined test them as gold is tested they will call on my name and I will answer them I will say this is my people and each one will say the Lord is my God two-thirds of 15 million people is 10 million Jewish lives based on the current numbers that will be lost during the tribulation period so it's horrible. This is a disaster that's happening. It's, un, it's a horrible thing that's happening. Yet in the future, God is prophetically stated, Pooh. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the awesome God. And the reason being, they refuse to turn to the Messiah. Here's the good news. That's the horrible news. That, and it's coming. I mean, you can't deny it. it it's right here. 
Romans chapter 9 through 11 talks about a national conversion of the Jewish people. When's that going to take place? Well, it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period when that one-third, as spoken of in Zechariah 13, are going to come to Christ. And that's going to happen. That's unequivocally going to happen. So, I mean, that's a lot of things thrown out in the time period that we have. But think about this as we come to a close. Uh, this, these, of course, we could show pictures day and night, and these are just a couple of uh, ones that aren't really that horrible right now. But, uh, uh, I mean, people that were living in these buildings and all of that, I mean, it's, it's all going away because we have Hamas who decided to do some horrific acts. Now it's cost thousands and thousands of lives, uh, people that are being displaced, people that will be refugees the rest of their lives, men, women, and children who will never be the same, whose lives have been totally upended and destroyed, and this is what they have left. Uh, I watched as uh, Palestinians went through the wreckage, and uh, they'd come across in, in video that I watched, and they'll come across somebody that they loved and cared about, and all of a sudden the rejoicing stops and the gunfire stops, and uh, they turn to... Uh, a weeping and mourning and crying because folks that they loved and cared about were, were killed. Folks, death is never pleasant. It's pleasant for the Christian who dies peacefully and God takes them home. But these are horrible things. These are atrocities. It's part of the wickedness of man. Yet despite all the wickedness that's taking place, despite the horrible things that Hamas has done, despite the wars that will be taking place, unfortunately, until the Millennial Kingdom comes, when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth, there's only one hope for America. There's only one hope for Israel. There's only one hope for Gaza. There's only one hope for Syria, Lebanon, and every other country in the world. And that one hope is Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven 2,000 years ago, went to an old rugged cross, if you will, to pay for the sins of all people. Why did Jesus do that? Because he knew we were sinners. Folks, we see sin around us. We see it in black and white and color all over the news right now. We're all sinners. And God says, uh, because we've sinned, if we got what we deserved, every single one of us would spend an eternity in an awful place called the Lake of Fire, Revelation 21.8. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, said, Listen, I love you so much. I'll pay the ultimate price. I'll let them beat me up. I'll let them curse me. I'll let them spit on me. I'll let them drive the nails through my hands. I'll allow them to treat me as an atrocity. And I'll allow them to put me on a cross. And I'll allow my body to die to pay for the sins of all people. That was not a pleasant death. He suffered as well. Three days later, after Jesus died, he was resurrected from the grave. Why? Because he's God. Why? Because he paid for our sin. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because he even loves these people. But, but, you have to do one thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him should not perish or go to hell, but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus paid the ultimate price. He paid the ultimate price for them. He paid the ultimate price for you. He paid the ultimate price for those watching tonight. I'll tell you what, 
there's no better thing to do right now in this messed up, corrupted world that's in a mess than to turn to Christ right now. You'll never find peace anywhere else. The peace that passes all understanding can only be found when you know Christ is your personal Savior. No, life won't be a rose garden. No, trusting Jesus doesn't mean you'll never have a problem again. But trusting Jesus gives you the assurance that one day, when you breathe your last, you'll be home to live with him forever. I don't want to walk through life without Christ, and I hope you don't either. If you've never placed your faith and trust in what Jesus did for you, how about doing it tonight? How about on this ugly, ugly day, this ugly time of war, you say, listen, I believe Jesus did pay the ultimate sacrifice. He did go through the ultimate torture to pay for my sins because he loves me. Would you accept him as free gift of eternal life tonight? Father, thank you for your love for us. Lord, it's heartbreaking to see what's taking a place right now in Israel and Gaza and other places. And unfortunately, in this old world, war is nothing new. Atrocities are nothing new. Man treats man with horrible disdain. Horrible acts take place. And yet Jesus, your own son, suffered and was killed as well to pay for our sins. Lord, I pray that if there are some watching tonight or even in this room or even in this building or those that will watch this at a different time, Lord, I pray right now that they place their faith and trust in Jesus, the only hope, the only assurance for this world. If that's you today, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, we've already gone through the gospel. We've all sinned. We've all deserved to go to the awful place called hell or the lake of fire. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, loved you so much that he did pay the ultimate sacrifice he gave his life and was buried, and yet three days later rose from the dead victorious. And he said, listen, if you'll place your faith and trust in me, I will take you to heaven when you die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him in his death, burial, and resurrection should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, seal these decisions that may be made tonight. Help us, Lord, not to get cynical. Help us not to lose our love for people. And Lord, we commit ourselves to you and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here tonight. We obviously didn't get to Acts. We'll pick it up next week. But uh, go in peace. Have a good afternoon. Good evening.